Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we're giving you the full breakdown of season four's premiere, A Flock of Lost Birds. Written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb is giving this a nine. Woo! Yeah. Overall, the critics are saying this was a really strong opening. I pulled a perfect quote. I think this summarizes it so well. Collider says it's the balance between semi-R-rated fun and sci-fi ingenuity, plus emotional candor and character focus that's made The Magicians a consistently satisfying watch these past seasons. Season 4 reboots the characters in exciting ways without losing any of the charm and anarchy that makes the show so delightful. All hail The Magicians, one of the best and weirdest shows on television. (laughs) All hail Appleman. The magicians. We went over some brief thoughts last time. We're going to get really into the deep dive here. We'll talk new faces, places, and magic. We'll give you a full plot review. Talk about our ongoing questions. We'll give our rating for the episode on a scale of 1 to 10 rations, as well as our most valuable magician. And finally, we'll get into your Clatcher's comments and the character review. We have a lot to discuss, but let's start out with our title that apparently I just cannot pronounce. A Flock of Lost Birds. This is one of the many ways the show calls back to earlier seasons, and I love that. Such as Julia making her discovery of break bills, it's just like Quentin's initial journey. (laughs) The very moments that made us fall in love with the magicians from the second I started listening to the books. That was done so well. Stacked on top of the fact that we've been waiting and yearning for a new season. The opening scene, we already have those emotions like, yes, it's back. And then they throw at us the nostalgic feeling from season one. Not just that, last season was a whirlwind. Our characters were without magic the entire time. There were the introduction of a lot of new people, faces, creatures. Sometimes it was complete bedlam. So I think it's really smart to open up with reminding us. What is this world about? How did we first start the journey? Where are our characters finding themselves now? That includes some fun wink-winks like Todd being the new Elliot greeter. We always knew Todd wanted to be Elliot. Just lounging outside, trying unsuccessfully to smoke a cigarette. And they include references to the books for us fans, such as Margot being Janet now. I have heard, and I won't include spoilers here, we'll have our spoiler section for future episodes at the end. But just to whet your appetite, that we are going to get some of the fan favorite scenes we've been missing from the books this season. They've covered most things. Even up until season three, they were already striking out on their own because they've hit so many of the highlights. But there are still a few main things that I've been waiting on. The title also reminded me of the iconic trip the group took to Break Bill South where they were transformed into geese. And Mayakovsky just kept saying, they were so young, they were so green, they didn't know anything yet. They truly were a flock of lost birds. Where is Mayakovsky? You just reminded me. I hope he comes back. Yeah, we're going to have a section on that. Faces we're waiting to see. We spoke about this in the instant episode, but it's worth mentioning again. We have a proper introduction to all of our characters' alter ego, glamours, whatever you'd like to call them. Margot is Janet Pluchinski, a fashion magazine editor. Penny23 is the famous DJ Hansel. Katie is Sam Cunningham, a narcotics officer. Josh, or Isaac, is an Uber driver. 
Julia is Kimber D'Antoni, an architect-turned-breakbill student, and Quentin is Brian the English Professor, with the Elliot Monster dictating his every move. I have to say most of these alter egos I really like and enjoy. Shoutouts to Arjun Gupta, I think he does such a wonderful job of portraying all these sort of spins on the same person. Spins? DJ? Nice. Aha, very good. The differences from our Penny 40, first of all here on the earthly plane, then once he dies, and he's sort of tracking the project from an outsider stance, to his portrayal of Penny 23, a very different version, and now the DJ Hansel character. This had to be a lot of fun for him. I know you raved at the end of last season. We still haven't gotten to see a ton of it, but Elliot's portrayal of the monster. Hale is amazing. He feels like the jack of all trades. He can sing. He can dance. To reflect on season one, which this episode only forces you to, which is great. Do you remember the Elliot that we knew then? So different. Yeah. He was completely encompassed of his facade. This easygoing, could care less about anything, just out for a good time and getting drunk. Very witty. You could always sense underneath. There was a wounded sort of person that had been through a lot and was trying to hide that, wasn't really addressing it himself. There were layers. Yeah. He was a lot deeper than a stereotype. Then he was forced to, for lack of a better word, grow up when he was pronounced as the High King. Shit got real for him. And I believe he had some bumps, but I think he really rose to the occasion. And we had a different Elliot that we got used to. And I really enjoyed that Elliot. It came to the forefront in their quest for the keys, but I think it really culminated in A Day in the Life. Ah, favorite episode. Probably the best Magicians episode to date. And I love the way they play that because... While it's over and done in a contained universe, it will always stay with our characters. And now we're going to get a different Elliot. We're going to get a childlike, self-involved, self-indulgent, but super powerful Dangerous. Many of our characters have had that opportunity throughout the seasons. We got to see Shadeless Julia, a much different, darker side of that character. Niff and Alice. Even just the glimpses, let's say, in Timeline 23, where Margot and Elliot are stuck in the library, ghosts of their former self lamenting the failed Rhinoman Ultra spell, just once again flexing the acting muscles. Oh, and who could forget? Quentin as the Beast. <laughs> oh, he was cool. He was like a stylized beast. He had swagger. That was amazing. I preferred, though, the depression monster version of Quentin, where he's fighting with (laughs) himself in that same room. Probably my favorite Quentin moments. Well, I think we both really enjoyed that because we've all felt that monster many times in our lives, and we still do at times. It's the doubt that you have in your head. And plus, even though it's so negative, at times I think we can become very frustrated with Quentin. This is how the character was written. It's on purpose. It's that way in the books. He's very wishy-washy and indecisive, not sure of himself, always a bit depressed. To have this version that's just almost berating himself for those Mm. things. Just deal with it, man. You can't exercise me away. You can't jerk me away. I love that scene. You can't jerk me away, yeah. Yeah, that was great. You know, we can kind of see a little bit of where some of our crew will go in the upcoming journeys. And dare I say, some arcs are even a little repeated in certain ways. We'll talk that when we come to Julia later on. But I never know what's coming for Quentin. Dis- no, we, Despite we having do. the full background of the book knowledge to guide me, it's a surprise, really, each season. This is a lame analogy, but if you viewed our characters as chess pieces, Quentin would be the pawn. 
where most of the time you just move him one spot. He's not really dangerous. You move him to get him out of the way of the brook or the queen so that the queen can move forward, right? But every so often, he's there and he can take out the other team's power piece. Yeah. He unexpectedly comes in and kills Ember. Yeah. There you go. Power piece. I mean, what? (laughs) (laughs) Now, not all those decisions wind up with good results, but you know. Well, just like in chess, if you take out that piece and you didn't see that there's another power piece behind there, Mm -hmm. now it's their turn and they can take out another power piece. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, let's jump into our plot. I'm going to skate over some of the things we already addressed, such as the opening, where Kimber D'Antoni receives her letter and finds herself transported to the grounds of Breakbills. A quick note here, as Todd is talking to her, he says, always be polite to librarians. They look harmless, but they regulate the good stuff. New world order. Definitely better than it was, but... Yeah, they make it a point in the beginning to remind us of what we learned in the end of the season finale, and then also let us know how difficult it is with Todd there, and then in the next scene with Dean Fogg. Yes, and Lipson lamenting their shortage of magic. She's also wondering why they're keeping Kim, despite her getting all the answers wrong. And we see the first crack, so to speak, in his plan as the colored glass lens breaks when he looks at her and sees the true Julia. And something I still don't understand what it means. They were saying that Kimber broke the globe or something like that. And I don't know what they mean by that. Well, this must be confusing to Lipson and the others at the school that have no idea it's actually Julia. They're calling her a squib to them. This is a person who really doesn't have any inherent magical talent or perhaps magic at all. Maybe she's here by mistake. Now, Dean Fogg knows not only is she an exceptional magician, she is a former goddess who has a plethora of power. As you said in the instant cast, this is probably the reason, on top of Dean Fogg's guilt, that he has taken her as the only person into the crew to break Bill's school so that he can keep an eye on her. He knows it would be dangerous for her to be out in the world, and she would probably be tracked down very easily. He's really got to be on his toes. I mean, his excuse was perfect. Well, it was the end of the day. We were probably almost out of magic by that time for the day. Mm -hmm. And that's why it broke. Blip on the radar. Meanwhile, as Alice is kept in her cell, other librarians pass by, lamenting the infestation of cockroaches. Laying the groundwork here. A man speaks to her through the grate about her recent failed escape attempt. Zelda brings her lunch, instructing that if she cooperates, she can receive approved reading material, such as the book she's given, Kafka's Metamorphosis. So last night, because we weren't recording, I was able to watch it again. And without taking notes, I was to see even more detail. And I noticed the book has a cockroach on it, and it talks metamorphosis. So right away, that's something in our instant cast that didn't click with me. Maybe she's going to try to transform into a a cockroach. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to read that. I did see the image on the book. I was aware, because Kafka's a very famous writer, in fact, regarded as one of the most influential figures of the 20th century, but I'd never actually read the story. I would if I had magic and it would teach me how to do that. I'd read all that shit. Well, no, you wouldn't want to be in this position. Just to give you an overview, if you're not familiar, his work fuses realism with the fantastic, which sounds great, but it usually features these isolated protagonists. They're really struggling with difficult things, alienation, existential issues, anxiety. This story is one of his best known works, and it tells of the salesman Gregor Samsa, who wakes one morning to find himself inextricably transformed into a huge insect, or monstrous vermin that's the direct translation 
he's struggling to adjust to his new condition. I won't get into it. A bunch of really weird things happen, but he's anxious. He does all this stuff at work. It's never appreciated. The first thing he's thinking is that he's going to be late to work. He's going to get in trouble. His family keep coming to the door, knocking to check on him. And he answers in these short responses. He thinks his voice sounds strange, but he can't figure out what it is. Now, of course, he's speaking like a cockroach. So it's coming out as these weird sounds. He finds he can't move his body. He rocks to the floor and calls out, will somebody open the door? They think he must be seriously ill. But eventually they realize what's happened to him and they don't know how to respond to it. So his family's just keeping him locked in the room, hmm. slipping food under the door. And they actually become more and more frustrated with the fact that he is a burden that they have to bear. He's not working, so he's no longer bringing home money. They have to care for him. They don't really understand what's going on. He starts to become more and more comfortable with the change, climbing walls and ceilings, and he actually escapes the room a couple of times. This reminds me of the Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly. I never saw that. Oh, it's good. Well, this is incredibly dark. It ends with him choosing to die so as not to be a burden on his family anymore. If we follow, though, the direct plot line to a certain point, the easiest read is that Alice is going to figure out how to transform herself into a cockroach and escape this room. I mean, there's a couple of other possibilities. We talked in the instant cast about it being a form of communication. There's other cockroaches in the building, so maybe they can use them like a hive mind. Yeah, I mean, I remembered the bunnies and we were able to speak to them. So maybe these animals are able to speak. Also, I was remembering when Margot won the vote. It was explained to us that unbeknownst to the humans in Fillory, most of the animals was like four or five times the mass number yeah, of humans. Yeah, the Remember percentage that? of population yeah. in Fillory is way more of them, and yet they're shockingly underrepresented in exactly. government. Exactly. So that's what led me to that. But I don't know. If there's no magic and she's surrounded by that paint that deadens magic, well, nope, never mind that, because I don't think you can deaden magic from creatures. Creatures. Exactly. So, so hmm. she wouldn't have the magic unless she does something like what Santa did. He says that you have to peel it off almost an entire wall to be able to utilize magic. I said to you, maybe she could get a horde of these cockroaches to come because you would have to imagine if she's sitting there trying to scrape off paint, Zelda or somebody is going to notice her. They're keeping watch. But if she wanted to do it quickly, perhaps she could call numerous cockroaches in. I don't know how she'd get them to eat the paint this would probably be toxic yeah. but it could be a faster way to accomplish that i thought for a second this could be a way to communicate with penny 40 i know he's in the underworld branch this could be on an entirely different plane of existence just something to throw out there or she could access the magic so she could actually transform herself one thing we didn't bring up is that we saw right before the scene with her the cheerios you keep calling them that yeah. the donut worlds yeah. yeah and i don't know much about it now Besides the fact that I know they look different. They used to be red and glowing. Now they look more like Earth, but as a Cheerio. I wonder, though, if that's because we're seeing different worlds than what we were be seeing it. before. Be because it. earlier we were only getting a glimpse of one or two. Now you see a whole bunch of them. The universe keeps expanding our knowledge of what that looks like. It wasn't until the end of last season that we found out Fillory is actually flat and has mm -hmm. an upside down. We kept seeing the dying world that we determined is probably the Netherlands. What's going on with that? Is it gone? There's still a lot of questions in the air about that stuff. And in fact, the poison room is a big one that Santa brings up again here. It's so funny that this is Santa. I just feel silly saying that. Oh, well, imagine how Alice felt. She was like, Santa? Santa? 
Oh, very well acted. I love that. She hated herself right away for saying it. Anyhow, you have to wonder why Zelda brought Alice this book. Approved reading material out of Mm. everything in the world. Isolation. Maybe to get her. Is she just trying to send her a message because there are some psychological existential themes underneath the story and what's going to happen to Gregor if he just sits there languishing, kind of accepting his depressing fate versus... Joining the crew. Mobilizing into action, which is what she really wants to have Alice convert Mm -hmm. to the Order, but... Join the Order. To have such a blatant kind of hint dropped on her table is odd for such an intelligent woman. And I know we're going to go over this, but I'm going to say it now. If anyone's going to take Zelda down, it's her daughter. Who we have no idea. Exactly. She's trapped inside a mirror bridge for all we know. Are we ever going to come back to her? I don't think they forgot. Trust me. No, of course they did. I know they're going to come. It's just been a long time. No, it hasn't been that long if you consider what I've been bringing up season after season, which is Q giving a vial of blood to that witch yeah, but Fillory. That was something that was the openings to a story, right? We never really got to understand where it's going to go. They set a chess piece in place. This is something they brought all the way to climax and just said, we're going to have you wonder now. And then left us blue. It's going to come back around. <laughs> yeah. Well, also Zelda apologizes that Dean Fogg isn't coming to see her. We see Zelda is actually meeting with him. He's mandated to bring the eligible student files to them, just for their records. You know, they trust his instincts. <laughs> she tells him Alice is depressed and Fogg knows it's because she's worried about her friends. Zelda's trying to gloss over the issues and justify their actions, saying the Order stepped into an oversight position and everything they do is to protect knowledge. Also, if the students were to resurface, she can't stop Irene from going after them. They have certain agreements with her as well. We've seen this before with Zelda. And I'm talking about Zelda and Harriet. All she wanted to do was protect Harriet, but she was neglecting the needs of Harriet. And if she got her way, Harriet would have never grown into the woman she is. She would have never learned everything that needs to be learned or experienced life. It's the same thing over again, but now she has all the power, all the magic. And it's trying to protect, quote unquote, the whole world. And of course, the way she sees it, that situation of having Harriet here is preferable. The way it's preferable for Alice. Hmm. You have the opportunity to become a master magician better than anyone you know. She believes all of that. And I can understand the nature of her relationship due to that with Dean Fogg and Break Bills. I can't understand why she's partnering with people such as the McAllisters. Unless it's just they have so much power, she knows it's better to have them on her side than fight against them. Well, Fogg isn't buying any of this, though. He doesn't think they'll be fine because his spell work is masterful. He knows his attempts will inevitably fail. So this is where I think they're beginning to sprinkle in... Sprinkle. Isn't that funny I used that word for this episode? Pieces that are making us think that Dean Fogg really does care. He says... My students students save magic. When my attempts to protect them inevitably fail, their blood will be on your hands. Let's be clear, though. We never truly doubted that. We always thought, in his own way, the Dean was trying to help them. He was an innately flawed human himself, dealing with his own issues and frustrated by these dozens of timelines where it had failed and he'd had to watch all of them die. We often liken him to a Dumbledore-type figure. 
this mentor who is actually a person that struggles. We got frustrated with him, understandably so, last season. But I think we were just waiting that it was a matter of time before he had his redemption and it all became clear to us. I've said this once before in a podcast, and I'm going to say it again. I really wish I had his voice. (laughs) This podcast would be the most popular podcast in the world. (laughs) This brings us to seeing where our group is actually in the real world. What's happening with them? We talked about how Katie... Sam is a narcotics officer with the Seattle PD and can't let go of this particular case, a guy who's been arrested six times but never charged. She chases him, loses him, but in doing so notices the star and keyhole tattoo on his arm, which sparks possibly a memory we're left to question. Something's popping up, and she Googles and comes across a page on hedge witches. It's then that strange occurrences start preventing her search. The mouse sparks, the coffee spills, the lights in the back room blow but she finds enough to lead her to a second location with the mark. I don't believe it's a memory. um, And I'm not going to reiterate what we said in our instant coffee episode. So if you haven't heard that, definitely go back and listen to that as well. I think it's more to the fact that she's a detective. And it just sparks that intuition as a detective to follow the breadcrumbs. I think that's a piece of it. And I would agree with you. But when she searches the page online and sees the symbol, another flash a different image comes up in her mind for a second. It looks like a buried memory. And we do hear Josh, Isaac, later say, I have all these memories, but they don't really belong to me. I don't know what they're doing there. It feels, again, not like they've been wiped completely, but super repressed. It's buried far down deep. Maybe that's because it's an experimental potion of Dean Fogg's, or maybe that's because he did this intentionally on some level. Who knows? I think Dean Fogg, because he loves them, would not want to completely wipe who they are. Instead, shield who they are for protection. I'm so glad you bring that up. Stay tuned for the end of our podcast where we do our character review. We are going to talk about an individual, but we will also discuss the details of illusion magic. And that might help to clarify. For now, back to Katie, who's tracking down Mark as he texts someone with a scorpion logo that Sam is still snooping. He follows her and tries to use magic against her, but he too is thwarted with a surge. Katie confronts him, and he realizes she has no idea (laughs) who she is. She takes a medal from him that he says is protection from her, and then bolts into the street and is hit by a truck. Oof, I watched the the behind-the-scenes making of this, how it's a green screen in the background, and a man with that green bodysuit, and he runs at him with a pillow. Oh, wow. And just knocks him (laughs) down so that it looks like it hit him. Do you think the truck is the spell, just like we saw with um, the ceiling falling down? Is it a spell that's protecting Katie, or is it just that he ran out into the street? That's a good question. I have no idea. I was saying before, you wouldn't think they would want to put magic in place that could harm them. It's just meant to stop them, and yet we see something. Was it an air conditioning? Something huge fall from the roof Oh yeah. when they're talking. If they had been standing there... Oh, no, it was a satellite. Well, it could have killed them. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think you really have control over it at this point. It's not like Dean Fogg's out there watching them on closed camera and stopping them. It's just causing bursts of energy to go out Mm. and whatever they hit, they hit, uh, get out of its way. Returning to the office, Katie puts on the medal and searches Jessamine Lil Cunningham, finding the book A Flock of Lost Birds. So explain to me what provokes her to search that. I am so lost on that point. And this is what I was mentioning in the instant cast where I said there was a piece that felt really rushed. It's from here doing the search 
up until she goes to Margot and explains it, that felt a little haphazardly shoved together. And I don't know if that's just because I'm missing things. Did she just search Cunningham, her own last name? Why would she Google that? How would she get to this other Jessamine? I don't really know, unless this is another memory somewhere that's buried, sparked in her brain, and it comes up. It's almost triggered from the events of the day. We had wondered, is it one of our characters or someone they know that wrote this graphic novel? Yeah. And it might have been something that was said between Katie and Mark, but we just missed it. Or something about putting the medal on, because it happens right after that. Mm. And we know that was from Marina that Mark stole. Okay. Yes, it's protective, but does it imbibe some kind of knowledge power? Uh, We have yet to hear about that. There's a lot of open things where that's concerned. Well, if it's protective of the spell and not fully protective, right? So at the surface, that means if you start talking about their real lives, they're a little more protected. Things might not fall on them. But if you think about it, it's actually deadening the spell, which means... It's opening her up more. It's opening her up Mm. more and she can see the truth. Agreed. I think that's a possibility. Oh, I love this next cut scene. Margot awakes to a voice telling her, Arise, Majesty, and opens a door that leads on the throne room to Ember, surrounded by kittens. We said it before. I have to repeat it. I have missed Ember. He is annoying. He's ridiculous, but he's a hell of a character. He's awesome. And I had said that Margot was wearing pajamas because they look like it. But the second watch, she's got heels on, a really nice blouse. Hey, that could be how Margot Janet dresses for bed. um, Well, she was sleeping at work at her desk. Okay, a little weird then that she's wearing cat pants. So then I was like, okay, well, she's at the precipice of fashion. So maybe... uh, Or, as we said before, this is partially a manifestation of her psyche. That's why Ember's surrounded by kittens, because it's on Margot's sleeping brain at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now, we do believe this was put into place by Ember. I said this last time, but in reading back through his actual words, he said it was an emanation placed there by Ember and triggered to warn her in certain circumstances. And it is very Ember-like. It has qualities Margot would never put there, but she could have been aware of it. And kept that in place should she ever need to be reminded? I don't think so. Which I'm going completely against what I said in the instant cast. I actually thought maybe she made it. Remember? Yes, I don't think that's So that's totally wrong, the second watch. Um, No, it's totally Ember. It's Mm -hmm. an alarm. What I find interesting is the fact that he can only get to her when she's sleeping. Maybe the sleep realm, quote unquote, is closer to the magic of Fillory or the magic realm. He says it. She's in a more receptive state. Oh, there you go. And I I agree with you. And I do think that's the case. But as High King, maybe she became aware of that alarm system and said, I'm going to leave that because I might need to be notified someday if I'm thrust back to Earth. This is not the first time this has happened to them. This is a way for me to get back home. I'd like to think that, but I feel like uh, seeing Elliot as High King, seeing our humans as part of the rulers... They're Listen, kind of, they don't know don't what the fuck's going on. Don't roll Margo into that <laughs> equation because she was a damn good leader who was on oh, top yeah, absolutely. of a ton of shit. But there was nothing given to them, nothing provided to them to help them be rulers. No, it's not meant to help her. Let's be clear on that. I agree. It's because any single time something threatens Fillory, Ember says, where are my stupid humans? Go fix this. We can't let this happen. We find out, specifically, this alarm can only be triggered by World War 
pandemic, arrival of hostile or uninvited gods onto Felorian soil, revolt of dwarves, or mass rising of the dead. Not sure they'd be able to do much, the dead. They're sort of feeble and rotting. It just struck me as creepy, and I'd rather you put a stop to it. Any thoughts on which of these you think is happening right now in Fillory? I know where my ideas lie. My first inclination is World War, because they were almost at one last season. True, it did seem they had that resolved once Margot was elected king. Now she but then did she left. Peace out on them. <laughs> I don't think that would have triggered it unless you bring in another instigating library. DeLoreans or what? The yeah. li- is maybe the library is penetrating Fillory now. Could be. I was going to say the hostile or uninvited gods, could the old gods be going there? Ember and Umber were killed. Maybe this is enough to wake their attention. They turned off magic. Now a new wellspring came back up. What the hell's going on in Fillory? Uh, that would be really fun, and I would like that. But what we've learned about the old gods is they couldn't give two shits. <laughs> Unless you step on their toes. They made that very clear last time, which mm. is why they sent their plumbers to turn off the magic. Right. They've turned it back on. They've killed their children. They've abandoned Fillory. Well, based off of what we know, last season we saw two old gods. The party god. Bacchus, who I think is a minor god. Okay, yeah. But yes. But he is old. But yeah, so he's not. I, I think he's more child of. We have the Ember Umbers Bacchus who are children true, of. True, But But we saw. Prometheus, Persephone, no, and Hades. Hades. That's what I was thinking of in particular. He already started meddling. Mm. So maybe. We just don't know enough. It's always hard to podcast after one episode. Yeah, but they were bringing in the Pantheon a lot more, as we talked about. We were thrilled about that. Still am. We saw Iris, the messenger goddess, training up Julia last season. I do think it's something they're going to keep playing with, hopefully. We got a, a couple of other tip of the hats to things like that we'll talk about later. But this is interesting. Something really bad is happening, and the Ember Alarm orders her to fix this now. Back in the office, Margot demands answers of her assistant, Sophie, because her eye is weird and Hmm. colors are strange. Love it. It's that fairy eye, damn it. I can't wait. I am so happy. I have been touting the importance of this since the fairy queen gave it to her. I hope they really extrapolate off that idea and it doesn't just become a blimp. I don't think so because they keep bringing it up. And if you notice the amount of times in this episode... Due to the illusions, the glamours, the truth is hidden from most people. It takes Dean Fogg looking through those magical lenses to see the real Julia. Marina maybe is close to getting that view of who the group actually is when she's performing her revealing spells before she gets shocked. If Margot could know enough what she's looking for, could the eye penetrate the truth and she might be able to see that? Well, the Fairy Queen said... You'll be able to see a lot. Yeah. (laughs) In the meantime, though... The doc suggests wearing an eye patch. Also, she wants the books she ordered, Fillory and Further. Love it. I wonder what's enticing her to that. There's a pull. There's a constant pull. There's That's something what we're they know on, yeah. on a subconscious level. I, I think that, well, in her dreams, Ember mentioned it, but that just happened. Maybe she's had other dreams before this. Anyway, Katie confronts her, showing her the book about their lives. She says something was done to them. A man claiming to be a witch told her this wasn't her true identity. The more she describes about the details in the book being oddly similar, the lights start to blow, a mirror cracks. My favorite part, there's an intense ringing sound in the background whenever they're getting close to something. Our bird does not like that. What a perfect auditory cue, though. Yeah. 
They're really good, the magicians, at things like this. Katie also says there's other characters out there, and she thinks they need to find them. That's going to force us to our next scene, but in between, we go back to Alice. The man next door to her cell continues to speak to her. And oh boy, here comes a ton of exposition, but in the best way possible. He says he was once in her position, locked up for his obsession with perfecting a spell. He was trying to finish the work of Diogenes, to find an honest man. But the obstacle was almost no good people exist. Realizing he had to focus on children, who sometimes still have innate goodness, he would find them and reward them in some small way. He needed a book, but it was restricted, kept in the poison room. He attempted to enter it, but it too killed some of his friends. Do you think that's going to be important, what book he was looking for? The truth book. Yeah. Maybe that's the only way that they're going to find out who they really are. Hmm. It was important to him because it seems like, as Santa, he had to find out the truth about the kids, who's really naughty or nice. Oh, you think that's what he was after? Yeah. That's a cool thought. This was probably one of my favorite scenes. And I normally don't go for exposition scenes as my favorite, but it was acted so well and so much was said in such a little time. And Santa. Well, I so I completely agree. I hated the idea that it was Santa because it just made it feel silly. But this actor saved the entire thing. Yeah. His performance was amazing. Well, it was supposed to feel silly. This show, one of the things we really love about this show is that it's so self-aware. And we've talked about this already. When Alice says Santa, she feels silly. Yeah, So, but sometimes it's a little clunky. But think about it. He's saying it's been commercialized. Let's take a moment, pause for a second, and think about it. So the real Santa is just a magician who does have magic, but now it's more believable because we've already welcomed these magicians into our life, right? And he does give gifts, and he does find what's good in the world with children. And he has elves, sex addict elves, but not all the time. (laughs) That makes it more believable. Oh, yeah, he was magical, but he wasn't the commercialized Santa that he hates. Now take it a step further. The library is so self-important that they're going to put away Santa for the rest of his life because he tried to steal from... Oh, yeah, library, they don't give a fuck. There we go. Who you are. That tells volumes of the library, of the real Santa. I love it because it makes more sense. It's not the Santa that makes you think it's silly because that's the commercialized Santa that we learned. It's a different yeah, kind they, of dark they, Santa they who went says off on asshole a, and another track. And listen, we are the first people. I love it. If you want to hear all the theories about Santa, the traditions, where this really comes from, we actually covered that in a Patreon bonus podcast for this December. So I do like that. It's almost like there's illusions sometimes that don't follow all the way through. We're going to talk Diogenes later on. Maybe it'll make a little more sense then. But I do love the information he's sharing. As I said, this actor does a great job with it. He has so many things he has to get to. After he tells Alice that the library came after him for murder and trespassing, he gets into his own escape attempt. This is where we find out about the deadening paint. He says he ended up lost in the stacks. They found him and he actually did try to kill himself. But the two won't die in here now. They're both smart and they'll figure it out. They're going to be a team now. Not only that, he explains he cares about her because he knows despite the fact she's hurt others, she isn't a bad person. I think this is the primary reason this guy is here and they made him Santa. (laughs) And that's why I'm getting to this. The magicians being so self-aware. Shirley knows we have been frustrated with Alice. 
I'm not saying she's not a great character. She is incredibly strong and smart, but also complex. This happens with Julia sometimes too. I think people go in the wrong direction with that sometimes. It's not that they're not likable. Okay, don't shoot me for using that word. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're gray. They're gray in the way that Jamie and Cersei Lannister are gray characters. You don't like, quote unquote, the things they do sometimes, the decisions they're making. It's almost like you can see them headed for a train wreck and you're telling yourself, don't do that. I know there's good in you. Why are you doing this? And Alice is for sure top on the list of that. She destroyed our keys last season. Who didn't want to throttle her in that moment? But deep down, we also know that Alice is good. And perhaps we need a reminder here. It's been a while and there's been a lot of actions that are questionable. But if Santa himself tells us, I know you're a good person, mm-hmm. we're going to believe that. For what it's worth, it's going to be okay. No, don't lie. I'm not. I've been where you are. Did I ever tell you why they locked me up? Talking too much? I was obsessed with perfecting this spell. You ever hear Diogenes? Yeah. Satsak philosopher with a lantern in search of one honest man. I was finishing his work. To find good people. Alice, you are good. You're nice. Honestly, most kids as smart as you were naughty as shit. I know you hurt people. And you think that means you should hurt. But I know. I know you are not a bad person. Well, cut to Santa banging on the wall and screaming for help as Alice lies in pools of her own blood. Zelda takes her to the infirmary. We see she wasn't really trying to kill herself. This was a plan. She's chained to the bed, but manages to trap a cockroach and hide it in her mouth. Zelda comes in and tries to empathize with her feelings of guilt, saying she didn't cause this to happen to her friends. They made their own choice. Alice is here because she broke her contract with the Order, but she's been singled out for rehabilitation. You have the makings of a master. You could go further than anyone you know, and that can happen here. There's work you can participate in. It's not a prison. But she won't ask again until Alice is ready. She's healed and brought back to her room where she spits out the roach. She sort of says to Santa, she has a plan, but it's not fully formulated. She's got to wrap her head around her ideas. Yeah. We'll see where that goes next time. Back at break bills, Fogg calls Julia into his office. She is worried that everyone got their discipline today except her, though she's not surprised. She's kind of thinking, what is she doing there? She's a smart person who is thriving on the outside, whereas here it feels she's at the bottom. Fogg says she reminds him of a woman he once knew, with a tenacious mind. He rejected her from break bills. He thought he was doing the right thing, but then she got hurt badly because he didn't protect her, and he's unwilling to repeat that choice. I have so many thoughts going through my head at this point. My first inclination is, well, she can't do the magic, even though there's some power in her, because of the shade, for lack of a better word, that Dean Fogg has put around her. Glamour. Glamour, okay. Let's not mix it up with shades. (laughs) But then I remember the last episode in season three, after she restored all the keys, she said, the light will never live in me again. I'll never be able to do magic or something similar to that. I think what she was saying was she'll, she'll never be on that level again. She's not a goddess anymore. She was clarifying that for us. But the question did remain, what is she now? 
Does she go back to where she was at before, which was actually very, very high level magician who always had a little more magic than anyone else. In fact, when magic was taken away from the entire world, she She still still had had sparks of it. Yeah. Well, but one could argue that was the God spark. She wasn't really transformed yet or aware of that. Well, it remember, just, it had to grow in her. It she seems, had to earn it. Yeah, but it seems like Julia always had a bit more, is what I'm saying, than anyone else. Even when she was on the outside and she couldn't figure out how to access it, she was still managing to do yeah. magic. You're right. But add on top of that that we learned that once a god, always a god. I don't think she'll ever have the light and ever be up there at wherever she was when she was talking to the other god to create worlds. But I think she's still blessed with the touch. She can't die because gods never die. We learned that from Reynard as a pizza man. Um, yeah, and don't forget, even before the goddess thing, after her encounter with Reynard, she had more residual power from that. So there's always more going on with Julia. So there's a lot to be learned there. And I'm excited about this storyline. I am too. My concern that I was bringing up before is that while they find a way to make it unique and different each season, sometimes Julia's journey feels like it's following certain beats. And I hesitate to say this. I know it's a very touchy topic. Everything she initially went through, trying to get into break bills, the difficulty of not being able to access this magic she knew was out there, the trauma she encountered with Reynard, those were all incredibly original ideas full of depth and meaning that made Julia a complex and interesting character. From there on out, she kind of had one large story arc in the books that I feel they condensed into a season and then had to kind of keep replaying that a little bit because what do we do with Julia? So they put a great spin on that. She's the only one out there in the world without magic who has a little. And then they turned her into a god. I am afraid now that that's gone, is she going to be in a similar predicament? I still have a little more magic, but I'm not quite a goddess. Who am I? How do I navigate this world? Even under her glamour, she has a bit of uncertainty of where she belongs and what her identity is. Once she finds out the truth behind it, you have to think there's going to be even more existential questioning. I just think the bar has been set really high. Right? The magician's team, the writers are amazing, and I wonder how you hurdle that. This podcast is brought to you by Care Of, a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs to your door. This year, make health and wellness a top priority. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or just generally being healthy, Care Of makes it easy to stick to your health resolutions. And speaking from personal experience, we can tell you their process is simple. You start with a fun quiz, and I am serious. It really is fun. It takes less than five minutes. You answer a few short questions about your goals, lifestyles, and values. You can include if you have any allergies, dietary restrictions, and it all has nice graphics and an easy navigation guide. Then you see your recommendations. They will suggest the right vitamins and supplements, include a breakdown of each, why they're recommending it, about the product that includes research and benefits. You can view the actual research if you want. Their sourcing, where does it come from, and the product specs, such as two soft gels. Here's the main ingredients. The best part, then you can choose which you want to put in your package. You can add and remove as you see fit. You can adjust or cancel at any time. And you receive a box each month with free shipping on orders over $20. This really helps because one of the hardest parts about being healthy 
is you constantly have to think about it and you constantly have to make decisions. This gives you recommendations based on research. You put together a box and every month they replenish you with it. Speaking of Jason, do you know 90% of people fall short of FDA recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin? I know I'm in that category. And to help stay on track, you can download the iPhone app to unlock savings, set reminders, and learn how to boost your health. The app also tracks your progress, and you even earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins. It kind of gamifies the whole thing. You can also add the nutrient stick powders for an extra boost. For instance, we added extra batteries for on-the-go energy support. It has all your good B vitamins. One more amazing thing, a portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. Take advantage of this month's special New Year offer for 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter CoffeeClatch50. So TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code CoffeeClatch with a K, the number 50, for 50% off. Everyone has a different path to personal health. Careof will help you find yours. Let them help take care of you. But that's where we leave it for now. We're going to go back to the group where Katie, Margot, Penny, and Josh are together at the office trying to figure out their situation. They're cleverly talking around things and trying to figure out what they should do. They discuss the others from the story. No one can find Kim, the architect, Nigel, the bastard son of a British lord, and thanks to one of our Clatchers for pointing out information that I think you're right on this and we know who that is now. Our Clatcher Todd said, couldn't that be Elliot's alternate identity? So... He, too, has that going on. He took the memory white potion. It's just not Elliot right now because he's being inhabited by the monster. So that's a good point. We don't know what's going on with baseline Elliot underneath that. And this could be his alternate. I was thinking, I guess, why would he get or need an alternate? The glamours are there to protect them. Elliot's certainly not being protected. He's being possessed. Well, Fog doesn't know that Elliot is. But would he have even been able to cast that enchantment on him when such a powerful being is kind of living inside of him? Good question. It's just, I my mind didn't even go there because it's such a weird set of circumstances, but that could be true. More on that in a minute. Brian, the English professor, was also reported missing. So Margot thinks they should try to find the writer of this book. Penny wants to ask Mark some questions. But before they can do anything, Marina walks in. Small point, I love that during this scene on the wall behind them, it says creativity is nothing but a mindset free. Mm -hmm. Marina takes them through a mirror to her stolen house and tells them that this is big magic. If you poke it, it pokes back. She starts doing a complex revealing charm that begins to show the glamour forms. It does seem like she's almost about to see the real identities underneath when she gets pushed back. It's really good to have the crew together. It's amazing that the writers were able to keep these new identities, but still have that humor that they had as the magicians that we know. Yeah, don't you love that Josh, who always loved magic in the purest sense for magic's sake, when he finds out about this, wait, magic is real? Really? Magic (laughs) is real? He's just so cute. I love it. But also the fact that Marina's back. Even though she wasn't a likable character in our Marina, I really loved her on screen. But now we have a white witch, quote unquote, she seems more likable from 23. Well, this is, yeah, this is Marina 23. So she's a bit of an unknown quantity for us, right? And she seems nicer. I love when she's on screen. She's a powerful woman. And I hope she becomes part of the crew. I don't know if she will. 
I mean, they're adding too many people to this crew. It's, it's going to be hard to yeah. write. And we have a question from a Clatcher about this scene, but we'll get to that during the Clatcher's comments. Yeah, let's wrap up with our last two scenes first. Elliot Monster takes Quentin for ice cream and kills the vendor. Right away, the stakes are set. Over sprinkles. <laughs> Which, I forget what he was saying, something like sprinkles or dots, and then after he kills him, he realizes, oh, sp- sprinkles are dots? Something, or something yeah. like that. It's just like, oh, man. It's childish. I love it. Yeah, and impulsive. Whatever his impulses are, they could be fatal. The current game, find a man at a temple in Greece, catch him, and flay him. Elliot says the man deserves it. This is another big question. Who is this going to be? Where will this journey take us? He has such a perfect line here, too, where you were talking about Hale Appleman's flawless delivery. (laughs) Remind me to get a coat. Am I remembering that you kill these little bodies if they get too cold? (laughs) Also, while he can't talk about the group directly without upsetting Brian's glamour, that's a big tip off. He is going to kill them, and it will hurt less if Q doesn't know who they are. Brian, not Brian. Right. More of this referencing to subtle memory, though. Essentially, Brian seems to be going along with whatever the monster wants because he's realized how dangerous this game is and he has to play his part. Absolutely. And luckily right now the monster likes him. Then, while knocked out, Ember comes to Margot again, telling her to fix it. Whatever is the matter in Fillory. She argues she can't do that because they're all on Earth. Oh, why didn't you say so? He wakes her up in Fillory. Talk about a nightmare. If it was Margot, Margot, this would be perfect. This is what she wants, right? But it's Janet. You're in the middle of nowhere. I'm in a forest in the middle of the night. There's two moons in the sky. And we get that last threatening image of some type of creature's hand coming around the side of the tree trunk. And we know how some of the woods in Fillory, we learned in season two, can be very dangerous. Yeah, there are beasts. Some are friendly and helpful, some not so much. And whatever's going on in Fillory that would trip this alarm... It's maybe not a safe place right now. Yeah, exactly. Jason, you were clever enough to think up our new terminology for ratings in the past. Season 2, we had crowns. Season 3, we had keys. Season 4, we have rations. Just like magic rationing supply, less is worse, more is better. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give this season premiere? Well, I've learned from my past, which is a luxury, our magicians do not have this episode, that I tend to grade too high when I'm excited that a show is back. On the opener. (laughs) Last year, I went 9.8, so high. And in retrospect, you gave a Life in the Day 9.6, which was really your highest episode, so it should have been a little lower than that. So with that in mind, I loved, loved, loved this episode. I thought it was so smart. It brought us right back into the world. So I'm going to go with 8.9. I want to say 9.8, but 8.9. No, that's a good solid opener. And I am actually going to go just a tick higher than you because I went 9.3 for the season three opener, The Tale of the Seven Keys. I'm a little under that because the whole idea of the Tale of the Seven Keys, which is so gripping yeah, and traditional fantasy. I really enjoyed that. Plus, we had the map already of, oh, that's our goal this year. And we are kind of missing the core of our characters since there's Glamour's cast. But for every other reason, I thought it was amazing. I'm going to give it a solid nine rations. Think about how hard that is as a writer. We made all of our fans love these characters. You know what? We're going to 
take it away from them, introduce new characters, and they're going to love them right away. Absolutely. This really sets the stage for the rest of the season. They had to lay it all out there in a way that was incredibly difficult, yet we were still entertained and interested. The pace moved along really well, and I'm excited to see what happens in episode two. So that leaves us with this episode's MVM, Most Valuable Magician. Every week after every episode, via Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clatchers, who is your MVM and why? Let's take a beat to explain how we do MVM, because it might not always be so straightforward. I know that a lot of casts or other people that talk about this do their most favorite character, the person they liked the most for the episode. That's not always the case for CKC. When we say most valuable, we mean somebody who contributed a lot, who really made an impact. Sometimes it's someone we like, sometimes it's someone we hate. We have done villains for most valuable characters in the past. And it's always difficult to figure out what choices to put up there, given that we can only put four options. With a group so large, we wouldn't have even been able to put up all of our core crew members. A lot of times that's okay because they're not all in the same place or they're grouped up. But also this time, as we said, their memories are wiped and they have glamours. The new characters are kind of like them and they're interesting in other ways, but it felt like that would be really tough as much as some of them were incredibly valuable. So Todd wrote in to ask, I can't believe you didn't include Katie in your poll. She was easily most valuable in the episode. We agree that Katie Sam was amazing and awesome, but because we kind of took out any of our glamoured characters, we decided to go with all of the other characters who in some way helped our group. But you know what, Todd? I'm on board with you. Christina outruled me oh, here. Oh, stop jumping ship. <laughs> no, you came think, up with I this agreement collaboratively. Jason's always trying to be liked later no, on. No, Todd, I like you, man. I think, you, I think you're right. We decided this together, and thus the options we gave were Dean Fogg, Alice, Marina, and Ember. And if you want to be part of this conversation, if you don't have Twitter, join Twitter and follow at CKC Podcast and be a part of the conversation. It adds to the water cooler effect. Let's reveal our results. Coming in fourth place with only 3%. <laughs> Jason, you bet Henry Dean Fogg. Dean Henry Fogg. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Listen, we were about to podcast. We were about to do our instant cast. You can see when I'm exhausted or in a rush, I will mess things up in the social media, in Patreon and all that stuff. I will mess it up. But that's how you know it's you. It's <laughs> yes, a good distinguisher. Well, poor Dean Fogg, though. I mean, we were just saying he's incredibly flawed, but he was kind of trying. I have, I, I got to say it again. I think Dean Fogg is going to win a lot of MVMs this season. Later on. I really do. Yeah. Coming in at third place with 12% is Ember. We were just excited that Ember's there. Well, not bad for a god that a lot of times we hate, who's now dead. <laughs> yeah, but in regards to what our poll was about, he definitely is pushing the story forward. He got Margot back to Fillory. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see what happens next. Absolutely. And speaking of characters who helped our group, we have Alice, who came in second place with 35%. Very worried about the crew, concerned about the monster, trying to warn other people. Zelda won't listen to her. Dean Fogg mm -hmm. won't take meetings with her. So now she is going to all sorts of elaborate and potentially dangerous to herself plans to try to break out of the cell. And coming in at first place for the premiere episode of season four is Marina with 50% of the votes. I think everyone is on board with how we feel. We're really <laughs> excited to have her back. I think you more so than me. I 
vacillated. I mostly did not like the Marina Forty character. Me neither, but I love the acting. She did a lot of bad shit. Yes. As a character, as an actor, she was great. She propelled storylines. She certainly was not out to help our characters. But as you mentioned, this Marina 23 does seem more apt to help them. In my mind, I still need to see more. I don't right. know enough about it what still her might intentions have been are. Right. It still might have been selfish. Um, whereas Alice, who is acting so selfishly last season seems to have come to a completely different place and feels a lot more selfless in her desire to help this time around. But I agree that Marina's actions do seem like they are going to provide an assist to the crew this time. All right. So this is a difficult one. I would want to give it to Marina, but she didn't really accomplish what she wanted to. It was really exciting to see her on screen. It was really fun to see that the hedge witches are still out there. But I'm going to give it to Alice right now, even though it's so obscure what she's going through right now. What does this mean for her? It was my favorite part of the episode. And she's the one that's suffering, quote unquote, right now. So I want to give it to Alice for this one. But I do want to give an honorary, and you're going to kill me for this, to Katie. Because I do believe she pushed the story forward. She's the one that found them all, figured out the clues, got them together... And we've been calling them by their regular names. I know, it's probably Because bad. it's easier. We should clarify, yeah, for this honorary, technically we're giving it to Sam. Uh, but I 100% agree that if you look at value, it does seem by the end of the episode that Marina's revealing spell didn't work. It, it almost did. And then she got pushed back. I don't know where that takes her from here in episode two. Maybe she will do more there. But as far as the intent and what they were able to accomplish... Alice got that cockroach. I don't know what she's doing with it, but her and Santa have a plan. (laughs) And I just love seeing this complete 180 from where she was at last season. Now, could there still be some degree of something Alice is looking to accomplish here? Maybe. But it really doesn't feel that way. No, it's all about saving her friends. She's worried about her friends. Especially with the tip of the cap that you mentioned to me off air with Zelda bringing her the bacon. And how much emotion this stirred in her reminding us of when Quentin reminded her there's humanity left in her. And that's a good thing. She can connect with that. I do think she's connecting with it again. I'm excited to see where that takes Alice this year. And our Clatchers wrote in to give us their thoughts on their MVM for the episode. Melly said, I loved Marina. She was confident and badass and her magic seemed to wake the magicians even more. Ember's just an alarm system that was found out by accident by Janet Margot that she isn't in Fillory. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put her there. Fogs all talk, but no action. Classic fog. <laughs> yeah, that's the... <laughs> sometimes that. Dumbledore things that irritate us about yes. fog. But, you know, he's got some of those good qualities too. I can definitely understand that thought process. Larissa says, Katie would be my write-in, but Marina was my vote. She has clearly been working hard to deal with magic rationing by the library and is quick to respond to anything impacting the hedges. Also, her warding ability continues to be two thumbs up. Yes, strong wards there. So we got two marinas. Oh dear, we found out that the magician's airs at 10 for Melly. So try to stay off our Twitter feed if you're in Canada until that time. Sorry about that. Patrick says Katie should get a nod for being the first to figure it out and bring everyone together. But the idea of keeping a live cockroach in your mouth that long wins my vote for Alice. Yes. Yes. Oh, just... Thinking about it that whole time was making my stomach turn. (laughs) That was actually in the behind the scenes filming as well. 
the ones she was putting in her mouth were obviously fake, but the one she was holding and handling was a real cockroach. It's a certain kind, I forget the name. They're used more often in TV and movie because they move slowly. Oh, yeah, because cockroaches are fast. Right, and they climb really well. <laughs> Olivia Taylor Dudley said it was one of the best on-screen partners she's had to work with. Very <laughs> oh, cute. If I was Hale or any of them, I'd be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick also says, P.S. Hale as the monster is phenomenal. Can't wait for more. Agreed. Agreed. Do you think they're going to tease us for a while with that? Like they did in this episode? I think they did that with the episode finale and now the premiere. I have a feeling we'll get more in the next episode. Maybe a little more, but I think we're going to get more towards the middle or three-fourths part of the season. Because it makes it more intriguing if we only get little bits of him. Because right now it's really about the crew getting back together, you know? Brian says no real words of substance to add that haven't already been said. Just want to hear you read this on the cast. And I didn't read through until I read it. So your tactic worked. Brian, that was perfect because there was one time in our Doctor Who cast where he just said something. I forget now where it said nothing. So I would read his name. I forget. Yeah. And we were like, oh, thanks, Brian. You really added to the conversation. (laughs) Oh, Meg says, hard choice. Marina 23 was awesome and I love her new look. Fog is hopefully showing signs of redemption. Alice was the clear winner for me. Can't wait to see what she's up to. And Santa made an appearance. Hashtag the magicians is the best. Hashtag save Quentin. Oh, I love it. I could not more fully agree with any comment. Meg, I love this. Meg, you're right. We should be more worried about Quentin. I said that last time. Okay, I get really hard on Dean Fogg as well. I was so upset thinking, this is great that you saved Julia, but what about the rest of them? You're pretty much resigned to the fact you're telling Zelda, you know, these spells aren't going to hold up. Their blood's going to be on your hands. I guess there's not a lot more he can do about that. He couldn't take them all into the school, but the school would be in trouble. What is anybody doing about Quentin? There's no plan to just leave him out there. I really don't think they know. They're not aware. Alice keeps saying, though, she has an inkling. That someone... This is worse than you think. Someone's in trouble. But they don't know who... They don't have the details like we do. I'm going to try to look Well, it's the whole Dumbledore thing like we've said in the past. (laughs) Oh. And at Trom, Brian says, Alice is literally doing a prison break in Magic Prison. Plus, she puts everything on the line because there was no guarantee she would be brought back. Yeah. That's what I was saying. While she didn't intend to kill herself with that move, she went all out. Yeah. If she had been lying there a couple more minutes, she could have died. I mean, Santa's on the other side, banging and screaming, come help her. It was terrifying for a moment. We covered most of the Clatcher's comments, but we got another question from Todd saying, how does the library control all the magic if Marina is able to use it? Did she steal a supply? We had talked about that, you and I. Yeah, Todd, that was a really good question. It made us sit down and really discuss this. And what we came up with is that we know the Hedgewitches uh, derived from humans who had some magical ability, but were not deemed good enough to go to schools such as Breakbills. They were shut out of that world. Yeah. And they were 
well, angry. Of course, we would be too if we <laughs> got a glimpse of that. Desperate. Desperate. So willing that even when magic was there in full effect, they had to find ways to steal, not magic at that point, but steal the education. The, 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 supply, the, the supply was available. Yeah, but so they found ways to learn spells that they right. couldn't get their hands on. They trained in secret. Every time they leveled up, they got a star tattoo, which is what we see potentially Katie remembering. Although another point I wanted to bring up to you, I don't think we've ever seen it with the keyhole inside. And I'm not sure what that symbolizes. I can't remember if it was shown to us on the TV show in the books. If you wanted to be part of this group, the way you would prove yourself was was to to go into a hedge witch location and you'd have to perform the spell. If you did it successfully, you would get a star tattoo. If you didn't, you had to leave. You could come back and try another time or go to another location. People that really started leveling up, you would have stars all over your body. So they started putting numbers inside the star. That's right. A 10, a 50. It would show how high you were. I wonder what this means. Having a keyhole inside of it is an interesting prospect. But back to your point, Jason, that they were always in some way having to find an end around it does seem that Marina is doing the same thing. How she is accessing that supply and whose it is, we don't really know. Do you think Mayakovsky is still around and he still has those batteries? I always still think about Mayakovsky. It seemed like you had to activate it. Now, could he be just activating them and putting magic out there for people? Maybe, but it doesn't feel like the kind of thing he'd do. Not for people, but where he's at now, uh, imagining he's not a bear anymore, <laughs> you can imagine him being... On the team of the hedge witches. Mm. My brain. This is totally against his thoughts. Some regime, the library, controlling everything. This is totally against what he believes in. For sure. My brain was going somewhere darker, and I was thinking of Irene and the McAllisters just doling out no. to people they chose, but why would they give like to that. hedge witches? No. I don't think they would. So it's either that or some other means that we are not aware of. So bottom line, hedge witches find a way. They always do. We've seen a loophole in that Dean Fogg was telling us he didn't have enough magic to run his school properly. He still doesn't, but he was getting more by going to schools that had leftover magic and they were giving him some. Hmm. There could be more surplus like that happening in places that they're tapping into. Or there's a leak. Something we're not Mm. aware of yet. Yep. I already said this. It's always difficult to podcast the first episode of a season, but it's always so exciting. It's fun. This is when you can really speculate. And we know more than half of these theories will be incorrect. But Yeah, you go back and listen 13 weeks from now to our first episode like, oh, God, you guys don't know shit. Oh, (laughs) that's what's great, right? Let's put it all out there. So thank you, Clatchers, for voting and commenting on our poll and even writing to us. Contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. We really appreciate it. If you're scared to, do it. Just go for it. We don't judge. We love ideas. Just go for it. Be part of the crew. Speaking of going for it, if you're like Brian and you don't just want to see your words in print, you want to hear your voice on the CKC podcast. If you haven't been listening to us until now, you might not know we have a voicemail. You can call in to ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. And leave us a message. Tell us your thoughts on the episode, your MVMs, your rating. If you mess up, don't worry. Just let us know. Hang up and call back. Leave another one. One more thank you to Megan 
I don't know if you remember, she actually sent us the image of this episode's screenplay last May. Wow. It was a blurry cover that one of the actors, I forget who, had posted. You could kind of make out the title. We were trying to figure out. It's funny. I looked at the emails back in the back and forth. I, I was saying... A flock of lost something? What is that last word? <laughs> so thank you for that. You guys are the best. And finally, Hillary said, in case you haven't seen, Magicians was renewed for season five already. Already. So that's way earlier than last year. And way, way earlier than the year prior to that. They've really earned their keep. Sci-fi believes in them. We believe in them. They're here to stay. We're here for 13 episodes now, and we'll be back at you when they return season five. There's two more small segments. One is our character review for the episode, and then our spoilers, the brief information we found out about upcoming episodes. We will give you a warning before we get to that point. For the character reviews, in the past, we have covered some of our major players, such as Julia, Penny, Ember, and Umber. We've also done a deeper dive on creatures or types of magic, such as the Lamprey, the Fable of the Seven Keys, and a few of our Greek gods. This time, I have two things to share with you. Our friend Santa talked about Diogenes, and he said he was trying to follow along with his mission. This is kind of funny, because who knows if this was actually his mission or not. He was quite a character from what we know. Diogenes was a Greek philosopher and one of the founders of the Cynic philosophy. He was a controversial figure who believed that virtue was better revealed in action than theory. He used his simple lifestyle and behavior to criticize the social values and institutions of what he saw as a corrupt society making a virtue of poverty, often begging for a living, sleeping in a ceramic jar in the marketplace, and generally behaving non-traditionally. And by that, I mean, he would curse at people. He would urinate on people. He would eat in places he wasn't supposed to be eating. He was trying to make a point, and he was best known for performing philosophical stunts, such as carrying a lamp during the day, claiming to be looking for an honest man. So the way he was doing it was satirical. It was almost half a joke. You know, why are you carrying a lamp during the day? Well, I'm looking for an honest man. (laughs) So we made it a little more serious here in our references in the episode. He ended up being captured by pirates, sold into slavery, and eventually settled in Corinth. Sadly, none of his original writings, the things he actually put down, remain to this day. But he did pass on his philosophy to others. And eventually, one of the branches and followers turned this into something that became the School of Stoicism, one of the most enduring Greek philosophies to this day. Wow. We also mentioned that we were going to talk about illusion magic. It's playing such a large role in this episode and probably this season. It is one of our magical disciplines. If you think back to season one, Breakbill split people up into houses based on known disciplines. So physical magic, the ability to manipulate matter, natural magic, to manipulate the elements, knowledge, people that held scholarly levels of magic healing, psychic, and finally, illusion. This was the discipline regarding the creation of powerful and vivid illusions, able to stimulate and fool the five senses. Illusion magic itself is broken down into smaller sub-disciplines, things that people can do with it, such as mirror magic. That's what we see Marina doing in this episode. Invisibility, a major arcanum that involves scrubbing your image out of existence. So think back to the stone that Alario, remember the Lorian master magician, he cast magic upon it and it rendered the wearer invisible to a god. He wound up giving that to Julia. 
he also used something called projections. Illusion executed around an area to make it look like another place. So if you recall, he cast that on Castle Whitespire to fool Margot that it didn't look like they were where they were. Camouflaging or cloaking, which takes elements of your environment and glamours them to mask your image. And it feels like that's very much what Dean Fogg has put into play here. And finally, sensory manipulation. This is something that was used on Quentin in the books and may come into play, so I won't go any further. But a very fascinating branch of magic indeed. So we are so happy The Magicians is back. It's been great to cover this season premiere. The story is wonderful as ever. We hope you're enjoying it and that you're enjoying the CKC coverage. If you like what you hear, please give us a rate and review. Even just a couple of words is so helpful to us to help others to find us. Or tell your friends. If they watch The Magicians too and they're looking for coverage, let's face it, there's not a lot out there covering The Magicians. Let them know that CKC is their virtual water cooler. And that's going to wrap up this episode and just take us to our spoiler section. If you are afraid of the spoilers, we will see you next time when we cover episode two. For those of you still here, we do know the title of episode two. In fact, we think the titles for all the rest of the episodes for the season. I won't go there yet. Two is called Lost, Found, Effed. Some sites actually spell it out with the full fucked. (laughs) And apparently we're saying that willy-nilly on sci-fi now. I love it. The synopsis is brief. It says Dean Fogg gets a new suit. Just like last time, that really doesn't tell us much. But we did see the preview of Margot saying, Where am I and why does everyone keep calling me king? The group is getting recorded message warnings from Fogg. To our crew, they hear, Do not tamper with my enchantment. And to Julia, do not repeat this spell. Ooh. I love what that infers. Looks like we're getting a Dean Fogg episode. (laughs) And more of what we were hoping to see with Julia. We also got a spoiler about potentially a big plot thing that could happen with Julia this season. Apparently, the Elliot monster has a sister that will somehow inhabit her at some point. Oh, boy. Okay. I don't know where that's going. I mean, I feel like we've maybe seen a lot of that, but... uh, Sure, why not? And in regards to sci-fi, just letting the F-bomb roll, (laughs) I think that is totally because of the CKC podcast, because season two, season three, we always talked about it's so much better on Netflix when we can hear our characters say fuck and shit and everything that they're saying. Well, when they were trying to bleep out the middle, it was so obvious what they're doing. It's just the words now don't pack the punch. It's like, you can't go halfway, guys. That's silly. In fact, our episode four title... I think, is fuck kill. Nice. I don't know if that's a variation on marry, fuck, fuck, kill, kill, or if it's like, you know, fuck it, just kill. It's hard to know where they're going with that, but really interesting episode titles. Also, I have to say, if you're new to this podcast, I was joking. I know it's not the Coffee Clots crew that made sci-fi do that. (laughs) We don't make sci-fi do anything. I don't even think they know we exist. It was a joke. I was being hyperbolic there. It'd be great, though, if you're listening. We love you, sci-fi. We love you, the magicians. And we can't wait for next week. Patreon members, we have our movie review coming out this weekend as well. So you get a double whammy, the magicians and our movie review. The favorite. Where we review the favorite. It was a really good podcast. I can't wait for you guys to listen to that. Clatchers, if you haven't joined our Patreon, check it out. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, give it one month. Guaranteed you're going to love it. There's almost three days worth of content there for you to ingest. We also have great ideas for our upcoming February bonus episode. We will be posting questions soon because we love 
<laughs> your participation. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. 